0: from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. We are on Thanksgiving break this week, but I'm excited to bring you a conversation I had recently with Dr. Dawn Carpenter, host of a brand new podcast called What Does It Profit? Dawn uses her experience as an investment banker turned ethicist to explore the role that capitalism plays in our society. This is, of course, a big existential question in democracy, too, and I really appreciate Don's perspective as someone who's been part of the business world. In this conversation, we talk about campaign finance, corporate responsibility, and how a new generation of investors and entrepreneurs is trying to marry purpose with profit. If you enjoy what you hear in this interview, you can learn more about Don's podcast at whatdoesitprofitpodcast.com or by searching for What Does It Profit, wherever you are listening to this episode right now. Here is my conversation with Don Carpenter. Don Carpenter, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, Jenna, it's my pleasure. It's nice to be on the other side of the microphone
0: indeed uh so your podcast, uh, What Does It Profit? really looks at the role that capitalism plays in our society. Uh, and I, I know it's something you've been thinking about for a long time and kind of come to through a, a somewhat unique path um, in, in your, your business and your educational experience. So before we dive into some of these, these higher level questions, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to be interested in some of these big picture questions?
1: Well, um, I'm almost not sure where to start. Um, I started out life as the daughter of a bar owner um, and wanting to escape a career in um, the uh, beverage uh, area because I was just, you know, really lousy at that kind of stuff. Um, I was the first in my family to go off to college. Um, And so that kind of set me out on a pace. But I thought I'd go into the world as a political journalist. Um, I saw all the president's men and thought I'd come to Washington and learn how to expose bad politicians. But when I got here, I, um, you know, realized that my very expensive education um, was going to be hard to pay off on a journalist's salary. So I went into investment banking, thinking that I could tell stories in a different way. And so I had a nearly 25-year investment banking career um, providing access to capital for social purpose organizations. And um, that's probably not such a novel thing, Nowadays, but when I was doing it in the early 90s, um, it was really hard to get traders um, excited about selling long-term bonds for organizations that called themselves nonprofit. They assumed nonprofit meant not profitable, um, and so it was a big sell. But we came in with some really big household names, which uh, got the market very comfortable, and uh, and so that began a career uh, doing that work. But I got to a place almost 25 years later where I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And and I love being a banker. Um, And it wasn't about like escaping a a terrible career. It was more about, um, you know, is this the purpose that I'm I'm meant to play? And I just had this moment. I'm like, no, it's not it. Well, during the last few years of my banking career, I'd been studying uh, the intersection of theology and business. I'm a quintessential learner. And I'm like, I'm going to go study this at a doctoral level. And so I left it all, went to Georgetown University, got a, a doctorate um, studying this concept called contributive justice theory. And that's what got me going. And in my relationships with the university, I um, became a fellow at a center that studies labor and the working poor. And they gave me some resources and said, do whatever you want. And so we started a podcast and mm-hmm. here we are
0: it's you know really interesting to to hear you say that you you had intentions to be a political journalist and and very much kind of wanted to speak truth to power hold people in power accountable and and we think about investment banking that's often I think portrayed in our culture is the exact opposite of that. You are the powerful, right? You are. It's the it's the the swamp. It's it's all of that. And I guess I, I mean, did it did it feel that way when when you were inside of it, or or were you kind of cognizant of that that dichotomy between you know people who are in power and those who are seeking to hold those in power accountable for what they're doing?
1: You know, that's a really interesting kind of soul-searching kind of question. I mean, <laughs> I as I mentioned, I got started in my career in the early 90s, and it was clearly before the Me Too movement, And but there are a lot of Me Too moments in my career. So, you know, it's the idea of kind of coming, being in a place ostensibly of power because you control financial resources, but feeling not in a Position of power, if that makes any sense, um, was kind of a equalizing dynamic. But I loved my clients. My clients all had social purposes. They were museums, um, trade and professional associations. They were charities. Uh, I mean, the likes of um, you know everyone from you know beginning of the alphabet, AARP, those types of organizations to um, American Geophysical Union. You know, these are scientists. um, All people whose purposes um, ostensibly were trying to focus on some type of common good. So I felt like, um, you know, it wasn't the same kind of career that your typical banker has where you're just, um, you know, it's pure, it's capitalism at its purest. And I am a capitalist, so I'm not going to sit here and rail against capitalism, but um, there are those that, you know, will do anything in business. And I think times are changing a little bit, but human nature is what it is. So You know, I never really felt like I was exploiting anyone until I started thinking about some of the more political organizations that I was doing um, business with or seeking to do business with. And now I look back um, after, you know, a number of years kind of intellectually soul searching, um, look back and I'm like, wow. What was I perpetuating?
0: That that uh, what does it profit? Notion I think speaks to some of the the bigger trends in in society and in in our history over the past couple of generations. You know, we had the Keynesian period and the and the, the post war years, and then that gave way to Milton Friedman and the kind of neoliberal movement. And it seems like you were you were working in banking at the the kind of peak of some of the the neoliberal. Uh, ideology and you know now I, I feel like we are sort of at a, a a fork in the road or or an inflection point where we're not quite sure what is going to come next you know we had the the crash in in 2008 and now you know of course with with covid we're, we're seeing the, the economy change in, in all sorts of ways and you know people are, are thinking about you know what what responsibilities do Companies have to society at large. What role should the, the government play in all of this? And you know, I I realize this is this is a really big kind of existential question. But um, how are you thinking about this this current moment we find ourselves in when it comes to capitalism and and democracy? Given both your your career experience and also some of the work that you've done through your podcast,
1: I think. Even in my own personal experience, I've seen this um, very strong neoliberal dynamic um, where, you know, everything, you need to have a market for everything. And I think that's destructive, um, particularly um, to, you know, the concept of democracy, because when you think about what um, democracies are, you know, the you know it's the rule of the people um you know when you look at a market it's not um the people ruling it's individuals who have their own um uh, self-interest that's driving what's going on which is very opposed to this concept of um uh, equality as as being a, a first principle or sharing of some type of uh power structure within um society um And, uh, you know, clearly I see democracy as, you know, the people deciding what to value as opposed to individuals um, kind of fighting it out on their own. So, you know, this is a dynamic time. I'm very inspired, though, because part of what I do, in addition to doing the podcast, is that every spring I teach a class in a graduate program at Catholic University, and my class is Applied Financial Management. So here I have, um, you know, a group of you know, maybe 40 students every spring who come in so um, energized by this dynamic that, you know, that they find themselves in this place in time where um, they've got to um, rebel against this um, neoliberalism because they see it as um, not um, sustainable. And um, so I've got this, you know, captive audience of um, kids that want to change the world. And so that keeps me excited um, because I really don't think that this um, this model of, um, you know, Milton Friedman, I mean, we, I think we're all kind of in agreement. I wouldn't say all cuz there're cl- clearly voices against it but uh for the most part the tide is going um in such a direction that you you see the financial round table saying you know the you know we we recognize that the uh, shareholder primacy model um is being, you know, transcended uh, to more of this stakeholder model. And so when you hear voices uh, coming from, you know, it's like the bastion of uh, the kings of capital um, saying those kinds of things, you know that things are changing. And so I'm very inspired by that. I kind of wish it had happened earlier in my career, um, but I'm glad to see it's, um, it's coming about because it makes me hopeful for, you know, I've got... You know, Children of my own, so hopefully you know they'll continue to um, to do better and, and more in this area. So I'm I'm bullish um, uh, to use a uh, financial metaphor.
0: Sure. Yeah. So when we when you know organizations like the the Business Roundtable talk about a, a stakeholder focus, or you know as as opposed to to shareholders and and that type of dynamic, who are they? Who do they have in mind when they mean? Stakeholders. I think there's, you know, one maybe cynical way to look at this. You know, only only about half of the the U.S. population has access to the stock market in in some form, whether through 401k or or, or, or other types of programs. And so, if if that is the lens, that feels to me to be a little bit narrow and and I'm wondering kind of how what what that that sense is among the these kind of business leaders more broadly
1: well i mean I think that's a good question because it's important to um, imagine what that could mean. But in its purely, um, you know, economic sense, you know, you're you're talking about stakeholders being creditors, you know, directors, uh, employees. And then you broaden that out perhaps to uh, governmental um, organizations, whether it's, you know, the um, you know, where the company is headquartered or where they do business, but also its regulatory environment. Um, And then you have, of course, um, shareholders or owners in the company, um, suppliers, in some cases, unions. Um, And then I would say, you know, there's this view that um, one of the important stakeholder groups is the communities in which the business draws its resources. And so that makes it very broad. Um, And so some companies, um, you know, I think of the likes of Patagonia as example. You know, they have had a long, rich history in you know, supporting the core values of their brand in terms of environmental um, sustainability. And that becomes who they are as a company. And it, it, it um, gives them some direction in terms of how they engage with all those kinds of stakeholders.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know the other thing I think that that complicates this issue, especially when it pertains to to democracy and and some of what you were saying about the the will of the people, is that corporations are are people too. You had an episode with with Adam Winkler, a, a legal historian, that kind of went went through this in in fairly great detail. But um, for for our listeners who might not have heard that episode yet, can you sort of give a, a quick Synopsis of that argument and and then maybe, you know, how how you think about corporations as as people in this broader thesis that that you're you're constructing for for yourself and your listeners on your show.
1: Sure. I mean, I wish I could give justice to Adam Winkler's, um, all of Adam Winkler's arguments. And I would really um, highly recommend his book, um, We the Corporations. It is, I told Adam in our interview that it's uh, one of my favorite books, um, because it, for me it is. Um, what he does is he... Um, tells the story of what, you know, might be called the untold uh, civil rights movement, which is the the way that corporations gain their civil rights. And he takes us back, you know, even to the founding um, narratives of our country. You know, we think of uh, the idea that, you know, folks came over um, seeking religious freedom and a, a new kind of paradigm and way of living. But he says, well, wait a minute, rewind. Um, think about um, the uh, commercial side of that story, which happened much earlier. Um, and he talks about um, the Virginia Company and um, you know, it, and tells that story that story. But when you talk about the question of, you know, our corporations, people, and, and, you know, that discussion with Adam, um, you know, he told this story um, that goes back to, gosh, the early 1880s. um, And he tells a story about Southern Pacific Railroad. um, And they were represented, I think, keenly by uh, this character named Roscoe Conklin. And Roscoe had been a former senator, um, and a close presidential advisor. Um, He's very, I mean, he's he was the political rock star of his day. And um, he was um, hired by the Southern Pacific Railroad to make the argument that the 14th Amendment was um, which gives the um, uh, uh, notation that there, no state shall deprive a person of life, liberty. Or property without due process of law, or any person, and so this this word "person," uh, within its jurisdiction, the equal protection of the laws. Well, he was arguing that because he was present at the creation or the writing of the Fourteenth Amendment, that actually there was this debate whether the word "person" or "citizen" should be used, and he argued that oh no, no, there was a it was meant to be broad. Um, the concept of um, personhood uh, was more appropriate than uh, citizens to incorporate, um, you know, the idea that uh, businesses could be. Um, could avail of this protection as well. The 14th Amendment was, um, rather than being adopted or just adopted to shield former slaves from discrimination, but it actually been transformed into, you know, a weapon for corporations to use um, to strike down unwanted regulation. And, you know, that was just the beginning of it. Uh, but that's really where, you know, it all started. And so you think about like the 60s, you know, yes, there were businesses who said, hey, um it, in some of the same arguments that we see in um, LGBTQ space Mm -hmm. now, as an example, or with women, um, you know, those same civil rights arguments were used, um, but um, turned down in the 1960s. So, you know, perhaps the court will get there, we need some more cases. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, Adam will be the first to tell you that, I asked him the question, is it just the political dimension of the court? And he said, well, you know, looking back, the court has had um no matter the political affiliation a um uh, a mo- uh, i don't know if he used the word bias but a um uh, a sense of um support for business interests and you know he kind of suggested that perhaps it was just part of our country's culture
0: do does all of that make it more difficult for the people like yourself who are trying to advance a different way of doing things because there's this other narrative out there is it like a two steps forward one step back type of thing
1: I was thinking more like spitting in the wind um, <laughs> <laughs> like, well I mean if you look at um, financial resources as a um, uh, an instrument of power yeah you feel at some point kind of powerless because um, you know we I tend to take the view that, um, you know, it's going to take some dramatic and maybe it's a, a revolution and no, I'm not calling for anarchy, um, or anything like that. But I mean, we see these movements like, um, the black lives matter movement. And before that, the me too movement and before that, the occupy movement, um, you know, when there is a tip of, um, of this tender balance that we have, um, where um, the oppressed, you know, outnumber or lose their sense of patience um, with the oppressors, you know, you guys are political scientists, you know, that's what Starts revolutions. Um, and so I think actually that might be an interesting segue to tell you that in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an episode on our show um, with uh, Morris Pearl, formerly of BlackRock, who founded an organization called Millionaires for Humanity, who makes that argument. He's like, well, wait a second, we're um, a bunch of wealthy people who realize that these vast um, measures of inequality make for unsafe communities and threaten democracy. And, you know, that's bad for business. And um, so he, you know, he talks about the importance of of having this balance and, um, you know, that's how I see where we are.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the other, the other argument that that comes into all this goes something like, you know, corporations are, are interested in making these changes, but only up to the point at which, they don't have to give up anything to get them. If they can make tweaks around the margins, they maybe make themselves feel better. They could show, you know, whether it's a it's a PR thing or whether it is their shareholders or or, or others that they're they're working with. Hey, look at all this good work that they're doing. But but really, like if you kind of go one level deeper. Not that much actually changes, and the same types of you know hierarchies and things are are maintained. Um, and so I guess I, I've. Two questions for you um, about that. One: Are people on the other side, kind of, you know, corporate leaders, folks within corporate America, um, aware of, of this critique? And and if so, is it something you know? Is it something that they give credence to, or um, you know, how how seriously do they take it?
1: You know, I look to the world for examples. Um, I so I think. Yes, um, because if you don't look out for the financial interests of your company generally, um, it makes it very difficult to sustain an ongoing concern. So I think there's always that economic balance. But, you know, I look to the bravery of, um, you know, companies like Delta Airlines. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, you um, Delta Airlines uh, severed its relationship with the National Rifle Association. They had a, um, which is actually one of my banking clients, um, they had a, um, a loyalty program or an incentive program um, giving discounts for NRA members. Um, and, um, you know, when this shooting happened, the uh, the airlines said, wait a second, we are going to eliminate that program because we want to, you um, you know, given a, give a position that the airline wanted to take a neutral status on the national debate on gun control. And they felt that this affiliation with the NRA suggested that they were um, supportive of all of the NRA's um, activities. And, you know, that's one way to take a stand but do you know what happened when they did that um delta is based in georgia and um there were lawmakers in georgia that had a um i think it was something like a 50 million dollar fuel tax exemption for delta um they voted it down and some say in retaliation for the attack on quote unquote conservatives um and um you know that was a bold move that Delta took and but it was for what they thought was um an important reason.
0: It's funny you, you bring up Delta to the point of what we were saying about two steps forward, one step back. I think Delta was also the airline that came under fire for doing stock buybacks with its bailout money that it received during COVID. So Oh yeah, yeah. You know, Don't get it, me started. <laughs> you know, I guess thinking about even this this Delta example, I mean, if if we're at a place where the the governments, um, you know, we certainly saw, saw this in in two thousand eight, and and we've seen it now more recently during COVID. It's you know, taxpayer money that's going to bail out these these corporations. Do you see, or do do you think that the responsibilities that the corporations have should change at all if it if it is more of that kind of direct government? government funding as, as opposed to how they might have operated before that intervention?
1: If you ask me personally, I say yes. <laughs> I was I was trying to go there with Adam Winkler in our episode on corporate civil rights. And I said, you know, Adam, we're talking about all of these civil rights that these companies have, but what are their responsibilities? And he kind of laughed. and He's like, well, you know, the only real, there aren't a whole lot of responsibilities Um for citizens or persons within the constitution. He said, he can't imagine them sitting on juries and so forth. Um, but he said, you know, that falls in the moral domain and, you know, he's absolutely right. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if in fact, um, uh, consumers move corporate behavior, it's going to have to be a place where consumers just look at what goes on and say, you know, look, enough is enough. Um, you know, you need to have some um, moral responsibility, and I see a lot of that pushback coming in the housing area. You know, post two thousand eight crash and so forth, saying, "Hey, you you bailed out these big insurance companies and these banks, but what did you do um, on foreclosure assistance or um, debt forgiveness or whatever that would have that would." Um, take those uh, public benefits that were given to those corporations and share it with a broader um, constituency, you know, more at the, the personal level. So, you know, I'm a, a student of um, contributive justice theory, and I really have a... Um, you know, a solid belief that not only do we have a um, an obligation to contribute to the development of society, but we also have um, the right to be able to do so. And you think about all of the things that happen in public life that could um, inhibit a person's ability to develop to their fullest potential. And so when you think about things like access to healthcare. Uh, that's fund in my view. That's fundamental. Um, if you look at access to um, safe communities and um, a decent place to live, that's fundamental. Uh, access to education, that's fundamental. You know, because if you don't have those things, how do you develop? to your fullest, to be able to contribute to your fullest, to be able to, you know, at its end, help others contribute. And so I think all of those things that help, um, you know, in the common good, help aid in that process. So I don't subscribe to the idea that there's a magic um, uh, formula or a, a silver bullet, but I do think it's a combination of ways of helping to support people to, you um, to develop and to give them a sense that they owe it to all of us to um, contribute in their own ways. You know, whether it's, you know, something as simple as, you know, taking uh, good care of your family and your family members to, you know, supporting um, those in your community who, you know, might be marginalized or vulnerable. Um, There are all kinds of ways and it's as unique as every one of us. Um, You know, so I, I applaud, you know, the, the, uh, the inventory of ideas, um, and I'm really um, hopeful that perhaps in this next administration we'll have a more um, sane and um, robust dialogue about these kinds of things.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, the other thing that we saw in in this election there, uh, Florida, as as you may know, passed through a ballot initiative, a, a $15 uh, minimum wage um Proposal and I, I think there's some of the, the the pundits will say that this speaks to a, a broader economic populism that's that's out there, but that you know these these policies that are kind of progressive in in their nature really do have broad public support, but the influence of corporations and the the donor class and you know all of these things get in the way of bringing these issues to the attention of of elected officials because of, of dark money and and you know some of these these other factors. Um, do you do you see those dynamics Changing at all, um, as as we we look to to the future, or or do you have do you have a sense of of whether you know some of these these arguments about these these policies that really speak more to to the common good to the you know people who are not maybe directly in, involved with with corporations are those messages? getting through at all to, to people in inside corporate America? What's your sense on these, these types of more progressive policy ideas that are out there?
1: Well, I mean, if you were to ask me what I see as the truth or the crux of the matter, I think campaign finance is the gateway issue to absolutely everything in our... Um, you know, democratic society, because it has such a um, a ripple effect. And so, when you talk about um, you know who makes the laws in our country, well, you look at the complexion of our lawmakers, and they're you know they come from by and large. And I think this is changing, and I think this hopefully bodes well for um, the future. But by and large, a um, a particular class of individuals that, um, are supported, um, by and large from a, um, a particular section of society that has a lot of resources. And, you know, it takes a, in my view, a remarkable person to step back and say, what is in the common good, um, as opposed to what is in the, um, My own personal interests. And, you know, quite frankly, at some level, I don't blame politicians because if they're not reelected, they can't do anything. Um, So there's this, you know, tension. But I think that if we were to look at meaningful ways to address campaign finance, um, things just might have um, an opportunity to change.
0: Well, uh, Don, thank you for, for all of your work on your podcast. It was really great to, to get your take. And uh, thanks for joining us today.
1: Well, as a former political science student, I have a graduate degree in political science, um, I feel like I've come home. So thank you for um, uh, keeping me in the tribe. Um, and uh, I've enjoyed talking to you.